0: Thank you for joining us this morning as we dive into Philippians chapter two. Uh, before we get into God's word, I need to let you know that I am wrestling with the topic I'm going to be talking about today. I even shared with the elders this morning. Uh, my my routine is, and this this is nothing special, nothing that you don't know. On Sundays, I come in and I preach through my message to an empty room because. Oftentimes, what I write and what it sounds like don't line up. It's like that sentence makes zero sense. I need to change it. Um, And so that's been my pattern for the last, uh, you know, 16 years of ministry. This is what I do. And as I got done preaching to an empty room this morning, I go, God, I don't like this topic. But... It's what he's led me to, and I think it's important for us to talk about this morning. And so, the topic is hidden in what I'm going to share about in the beginning of this message. I, I have to talk about to, uh, politics for a few moments this morning. Oh, politics, we don't, we don't do that, pastor. We don't you know mix church and religion and state and politics, and I go, well, I'll be honest, Politics right now are so pervasive that they're becoming a religion for some. They are so thick in our discourse, in our conversations, in what we see and what we interact with, that it's impossible to not speak in our circles on political things. And so I have very close friends. This is the hard part for me. I have very close friends on both ends of the spectrum. And I'm not talking about, you know, Here's the blue, and here's the red, and I've got friends here. I've got friends here on both ends of the spectrum. And of those friends, they all profess great, deep faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. But I hear things like this. How can you call yourself a Christian? And Have you ever heard that statement before or seen that statement? I'll give you just two examples. How can you call yourself a Christian and be a Democrat? How can you call yourself a Christian and vote for Trump? And it's always filled with an agenda of the why. (laughs) You've got capitalism versus democratic socialism. You've got red versus blue, conservative values versus liberal values, the House versus the Senate, and so on and so forth. What has been hard for me is what I've seen is something like this. You've got, and we'll just, you know, red and blue, Democrat, Republican, you know, I've left out Independent and Green Party, I apologize. Um, but what I see is you've got many on one side saying, hey, if you're with us, put on these glasses, and now you can see them for who they really are. Or, you know, if, if you're with us then we need you to understand this is what we talk about, and now you can see them for who they really are. And I try to balance this reality of, I've got friends who love Jesus who are saying opposite things with great conviction and passion. Where do we stand? What does this look like? What do we do? My heart's been broken, if I'm being honest, with the rhetoric that has been coming to the surface. And I've spent a lot of time the last couple of months trying to, to wrap my mind around it all. I talk with them, my mind around it all. I, I talk with my kids about politics. They ask questions and we try to give honest answers. I know what I believe to be important politically. And I know what I believe to be important as a representative of the kingdom of God. Are the two able to coexist in harmony? Huh. This is not a... A shaming sermon at all. I'm not going to come and say, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't say these things, or you should do this, you should do that, you should say these things. I'm simply going to talk about this topic in conjunction to what I see in Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not settled on how to respond. That's why I walked away this morning going, God, there's no like home run close, like we can all walk away singing your praises of God is good and Philippians chapter 2 is great. Lord, I don't know how to respond to this. So, in the past couple of weeks, and this week in particular, as I've been sorting through all the rhetoric, regardless of where you land, I found something to be missing this week that I desperately desired to see. And it's what Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 2. I confess that there are times I wear my glasses and I see them for who they are, so to speak, and I see them for who they are. I took my glasses off this week and I said, God, what do I need to see in this? What, what's missing? How can I encourage people in this heated debate To respond a way that you would want. What what I've seen has been missing. Um, It's just one simple word. And it's humility. What is humility? Well. One commentary defines humility. As the ability to assess one's self appropriately. Especially in light of one's sinfulness. Humility is the ability to look at yourself. And see yourself for who you really are, especially in light of your sinfulness. And it's not just about seeing yourself for who you are, because, well, then we would compare ourselves to others and go, well, I'm better than them, or they're better than me. It's a reality in this statement of humility is assessing yourself next to Christ. Who am I next to Him? Okay, well, in all reality, I'm a nobody, I'm a I'm a nothing compared to God. Yet, He sees great, great value in me, and my value is not based upon my accomplishments, what I've done, how great I am, but how great He is and what He's done. And so to have humility, it literally means to be able to view the world in light of what God has done for you and is doing for you and through you. So last week, we, we met Paul and he was writing this letter to this group of people in this place called Philippi, and uh, in this letter he spends the first chapter or the first section, if you will, talking about joy. And we ask the question in light of Philippians chapter one: what what needs to happen in order for us to truly be joyful people, uh, to experience the joy of the Lord in our lives? And when we we talked about some things, and so the four points we mentioned last week of What does it take to truly be a joyful person? One is a a focus on others. When you focus on yourself, then no, you aren't going to experience the true joy that God talks about. Second, we talked about seeing past your circumstances, that your joy should not be dependent on what is happening around you, because then anyone or anything has the ability to affect your joy negatively. But if your joy is found in Christ, then your circumstances become irrelevant. Third, to experience and to be a person who truly experiences God's joy. Uh, Embrace the eternal. Understand this is the temporary and we live for the eternal. It's not about here and now. And fourth, what does it take to truly be a joyful person? Stand firm together. So Paul, he, he settles the issue of their joy. Hey, I want you guys to experience joy. I want you to know the will of God in your life. I want you to be joyful people. And here's How you can do it. He opens up chapter 2 by turning to His joy. Hey, you guys in Philippi, be joyful. Now, here's how you can make me joyful. He says this in verses 1 through 4. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, Then make my joy complete. How can they make his joy complete? Don't read ahead and hold on. Well, I believe that the answer is found in this idea of humility. This understanding of what does it mean to be a humble person. And so he, he answers the question in the next couple of verses. But the question that we're going to look at this morning is how do we walk in humility? He says this, moving on, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul continues in talking about joy, and basically he's saying that in order for them to make his joy complete, they need to follow these principles. Well, what are these principles? The principles of humility. First, he says this. Be like-minded in spirit and in purpose. I would argue that a mark of a mature person is very simple. Their focus shifts from me to we. It's not just about me or I, what I want, what I've done, what I've accomplished. It's about us and moving us forward as a people, as a group. And so he says, be be like-minded in spirit and in purpose. Move from I to we. Follow this principle and you will understand what it means to walk in humility. Focus on others. Second, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Okay, Again, this is kind of redundant. So if you focus on others, your, self, your focus will not be on self and what you can accomplish, what you can gain, what you can do, what 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 is about you, but focus on doing nothing out of selfish ambition. Well, God, isn't it good to take care of yourself? Yes. Isn't it good then to take care of your family? Yes. Isn't it good to X, Y, and Z? <clears throat> well, yes. But Paul is saying, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit where it's all about you and you alone. Third, he says this, put others first. Again, it sounds kind of redundant. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look to your own interests, but also... To the interest of others, so it's again this. Yeah, take care of your needs. That's important. You should eat and sleep and drink and 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 make uh, a living for yourself. But but also look to the interests of others. Doesn't this sound awfully familiar from last week? Last week, focus on others. See past your circumstance. Embrace the eternal. Stand firm together. This week, be like-minded. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Put others first. Is there a connection between being truly joyful and walking in humility? Perhaps so. Here's where my heart breaks. These statements are not at all what I've seen being lived out lately in the political world. It's disheartening. And I'm not just putting this on politicians, but on my friends from both sides of the fence. I'm not seeing humility I see a lot of anger. And I realized some things. As I took these glasses off, I said, God, help me to see through your eyes what, what's going on. I think in many ways, our society is looking to politicians uh, to be a specific person or a specific, to think a specific way, to hold to a specific set of ideals. And as I look at all of the things that I think Jesus would honor, I go, well, there's things on both sides that I think Jesus would fight for. But we draw a line in the sand, politically speaking, and say, if you're one of us, then these are your prescribed values. Here's our glasses, think like we do. Democratic, if you are one of us, these are your prescribed values. You'll think like us. This is what we find important. And I go, there's got to be a middle ground. And this is the hard part. I don't know where this middle ground is. So let me tell you about one of my friends without giving their name. Uh, He's one of these on the, the, the far end of the blue spectrum, lived in inner city his entire life as a pastor, loves Jesus, and he says, this is most important. Social justice is so important. And I go... I believe you, I believe it. taking care of other people is important, but you don't know my experience. When I was 17, 18 years old, I worked at Coons in inner city Pittsburgh. Coons, again, it's a family name of a grocery store, not derogatory in any way, shape, or form, but I would work in Coons and I would stand and, and, and work in the lottery booth because that's where they're like, hey, you're going to work here. I said, okay, give me my $4.25 an hour, and here's what I would see happen. I'd have the same people daily, daily come in and spend one, two, three hundred dollars on lottery tickets. And then they'd take their food stamp card and they would buy their groceries with their food stamps and they'd drive away in their brand new Lexus SUV. And I go, there's a disconnect here. I don't understand what's going on. You see, I'm not knocking food stamps. I tell you what, and I've shared this with you. Growing up, my parents, when they divorced, we lived on government assistance because we had no other means of making ends meet. My mom was so embarrassed, she would give me the food stamp booklet because this is when you had the actual, this is a food stamp, rip it out and you'd pay it with the stamp, not the EBT card. And she'd send me down to the grocery store, and I'd walk down to Nichols Bakery going, hey, I get to get some muffins or something. And I never knew that, you know, why she would send me. I just knew that I'd get some donuts or a muffin because I could do that. <clears throat> Come to find out that, you know, one of my friends was like, hey, what are you doing? I'm, I'm just getting some groceries. Oh, you guys are on food stamps? Yeah. He goes, oh, that means you must be poor. And I, I don't know. We needed help. In fact, when Miriam and I were in seminary, life was hard living in New York. The rent for our two-bedroom apartment was double what our mortgage payment is right now. And this was 10 years ago. Actually, it was more than double what our mortgage payment is now. Just to rent a house. Milk, I tell my friends this all the time, and they're like, how is this possible? Milk is 99 cents a gallon. at Shoprite shop right, or save a lot. We can get eggs for 37 cents a dozen. They're like, are you kidding me? Milk is $4.29 where we live, and uh, eggs cost you know $1.99 for, for six. How in the world is it? I, it's just the way it is, cost of living. So when we were in seminary, um, and we were having kids left and right, uh, we were on a wick. Um, <laughs> we went to seminary with two, and we came out with four. Um, <laughs> But we needed, we needed the help, and we were grateful that the government was able to provide help for us. <laughs> yes, we know where kids come from. Um, <laughs> but having been on, on this end, I go, yes, this is, this is a great program, but I don't know. There's a disconnect. Let's talk about uh, abortion and, and fighting against the, the death of innocence. I've heard this a dozen times. I go, well, I'm, I'm against abortion, but... I watched a video this week um, of this woman who uh, was in her 50s and had her own adult children and she was sharing how her mother was raped when she was 11 and she became pregnant. And she's telling the story, this is the daughter who was born from this incident and she said, I am so grateful that my mom chose to give birth to me and my mom at 12 years old chose to give birth to me because her mom said this child has value but by so many standards even the Christian church would say well abortion is wrong except for rape and incest she goes I'm so grateful that I have had the opportunity to live and to to know my God and King because someone said I have value and so I go, I, I know that there is, there is truth here. But then you have this argument of, well, Republicans only care about the unborn. They don't care about the born. When they're born, what happens? How many children have you fostered? How many children have you adopted? I hear this argument all the time. It's like, here's the rhetoric. If you have this point, here's the counterpoint. And everyone has their list of point and counterpoint. And they just throw them back at each other. I go, Lord... What do I want? I I want Jesus to run for president, but Jesus said, This is not why I've come. I didn't come to be the earthly king, I came to be the heavenly king. And so understand this that we live in a flawed world. Here's the other thing I look at we keep looking to other people and say, They'll solve our problems, they'll solve. They won't. In fact, we know how it's going to go. Have you looked at the book of Revelation? We know how this story ends. Things are going to get worse. In fact, what's going to happen is that there will be people, or specifically a person that will be raised up as a counterfeit. The world won't know that person's a counterfeit, but they'll say, that one right there, they'll take care of us, and they'll flock to him. And yes, I've heard it, Obama is the Antichrist. I've heard it, Trump is the Antichrist. No, they're not. We're not living in a persecution right now. Our faith is not in question, but I can tell you that it will be. Our hope should not be in politicians, it should be in Christ. Well, then, how do we respond? I love political activists who love Jesus because they fight for the unborn. They fight for fostering. They fight for those who have uh, need financially. They also fight for regulations of saying, hey, this is how to not abuse this system. We need these people. Guys, I I don't think I'd ever be that person. I'm not good at that because I just pull my hair out and I go, Lord, I just want you. I, I don't know. I don't know. But Paul goes into great detail when he talks about humility and I like this this is my this is my response this is how I need to respond I know that things are going to get difficult for Christians I know that it's going to cost us something to have faith in Christ It doesn't cost us anything right now and I'm encouraging you to not buy into the rhetoric that this is a religious institution it's not it's political and there is no perfect candidate there is no perfect party But I go, Lord, how do we navigate this as Christians? My encouragement is to walk in humility. What does Paul say? He continues on, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or prized. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What was his response? (laughs) I've not come to be king. I am the king of kings. I came to die. How do we walk in humility? Well... Well, be like Christ. Well, how should we be like Christ? He existed in the form of God, yet he did not regard his existing in a manner of equality with God as a prize to be grasped or held onto. He goes, hey, I've got it made in heaven, but this is not what's important right now. What's important is you. The one who was existing in the form of God, took on the form of a servant. He did not relinquish his uh, godhood, but he became obedient to life on earth, life which meant a physical death. And I have to take a moment, a pastoral liberty, if you will, to talk about this passage. This passage in particular has been one of heated debate for generations, in, let me go back to it real quick. In a different translation, so this is the NIV in the New American Standard Version, which is basically here's the Greek and Hebrew. We're going to translate it as literally as possible so that we're not losing anything. In the NASB, it says in verse 7, uh, he made himself nothing, is translated as he emptied himself. Uh, this idea, uh, this Greek word, uh, konos, becomes the theological foundation for. The kenosis, again, this is Greek, doesn't matter to you. Here's the deal. It's been argued, well, what has he emptied himself of? What has he emptied himself from? Wasn't he fully God and fully man? How does this work? I'm confused. Jesus, you emptied yourself. What does that mean? Well, let me give you Pastor Nelson's perspective on this because I'm diving into this for a few minutes because it literally transformed the way I view God. We believe that, Jesus Christ came to this earth as fully God and as fully man. He was divine and He was human. He came in the flesh in order to save us, yet He also gave us an example to follow. Uh, One commentator wrote, The greatest battle that we have to fight is against selfishness. Jesus fought that battle every day. My will versus my Father's will in heaven. And He said, I have come to do that which my Father has asked of me. I obey Him, not my own desire. The will of Christ was just like yours and mine. He did not naturally want the cross. In fact, he, he, His will shrunk away from God's will when He asked His Father in heaven, would you take this cup from me? Hey God, you're telling me this is what's going to happen. Dad, thanks for that. If there's any way... Dad, that I don't have to do that, that'd be great. That was Jesus. But he says, okay, not my will, but yours be done. We can relate to him. In this way, Jesus was just like us, but again, he was far more than us. Unlike you and me, Jesus always denied his own will and chose to do his Father's will. He denied himself and revealed the other centered love of God. Jesus was always obedient to God. He was sinless and holy. Romans 8 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. For this reason he had to or he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make an atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted he was able to help those who are being tempted Basically the author here is saying Jesus It was just like you and me. If Jesus dropped a log on his foot and hurt his toe, he probably would have screamed. And it would have hurt. Jesus felt physical pain. Jesus felt emotional pain. Jesus is the one that we are to be like. Well, here's the interesting thing. How am I supposed to be like God? I'm not God. James Rafferty writes this, As a man, Christ trusted God's will for his life, no matter how crucifying it was to his human nature. This trusted surrender of Christ's humanity to God restored the fallen human nature, the full image of God, because this was the very nature Christ took upon himself. In Christ, fallen human nature stood victorious over selfishness. Christ's victory, gifted to us through faith, is the essence of our salvation. This victory over the flesh of self-will is a gift given to all who will receive it by faith. John Calvin summed it up. He said, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Jesus was fully God and fully man. I can relate to Jesus as fully man, but how can I relate to Jesus as fully God? I don't understand. John 6.38 38. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but of the will of him who sent me. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Here's my philosophy on what it meant that Jesus emptied himself. I do not believe, as some theologians would argue, that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. I'm going to leave this up in heaven and I'm just going to come on down here as good old human Jesus. No, I believe that he was fully God and fully man. What I believe, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. For me, that means he set aside his will, his power, his decision making. He said, I will choose to leave heaven. I will choose to suffer and feel pain. I will choose to die. He left perfection to come down and be with us. When Jesus became a human being, in many ways, he gave up certain rights as, the God, as God the Son. Uh, this can be seen in three ways. First, he restricted himself to a human body with all of its limitations. He gave up his position when he became a human, human being. Second, he, he veiled or he hid his glory you know, he didn't just shine bright and people couldn't look at him. We see this on the ascension when he goes into heaven um, that his, his glory is being revealed to the world around us, or world around him. And finally, he exercised his relative attributes only by the will of God the Father, never on his own initiative. Here's, here's my philosophy. This is how I can relate to Jesus. What if, and maybe this is a question I'll leave you instead of a directive. What if... When Jesus came to earth, that he chose not to walk in his divinity. He could turn off the feelings. He could turn off the emotions. He could turn off the pain of the cross. He could have done that. Why? He's God. He can do anything. But he chose not to. He chose not to enter into that. What if when Jesus healed the sick, he didn't turn on the, the Jesus, I'm now God button, but he relied on the Holy Spirit just like he asks us to do? What if? I've talked with some people, and I've I've been on different sides of this with different people. I go, listen, I don't know fully if this is what this is intending to mean, but it helps me relate to him because he says, hey, I want you to follow my example. How can I follow God and be, I I, I don't have that power in me, but I have the Holy Spirit. And what if Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit just like he's asking us to rely on the Holy Spirit? Okay, I can connect to that. So, is this some deep theological mistruth or misunderstanding that pastor has? I don't think so. I believe that Jesus is inviting us to be like him in a way that we can be like him. He was tempted. It's funny, I, one of my friends, he, he talks about the temptation of Jesus in Matthew, and he goes, you know, what do you picture when you see this story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? And he says, do you picture a a, a physical devil with a pitchfork? With a a, a John Belushi voice saying, I'm Satan. That's what I always pictured. He goes, but is that how you and I are tempted? No, I've never seen the physical form of Satan come down and say to me verbally, hey, Jason, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. It's a battle that happens in my head. Well, if Jesus was fully God and fully man, wouldn't it make sense that Jesus was tempted in the exact same ways we are tempted? I never thought of that before. I can relate to that. I can can relate to that. Jesus, you overcame the same temptations I did. It wasn't a physical battle with Satan himself that you had. Maybe it was. But I can relate to the mental struggle of temptation. One thing that he cannot relate to us with is being filled with sin. He was one with no sin. If anyone could have bragged about their position or their accomplishments. It would have been Jesus. Yet his response to those around him was humility. So take that pastoral privilege of the what-ifs and maybe wrestle with them like I have and, and come to a conclusion on your own. But I tell you what, I can connect to Jesus more knowing that he struggled in the same way that I struggle. That he walked in his authority the same way he's inviting us to walk in his authority. And he's given us the Holy Spirit in order to empower us for that purpose and task. When Jesus healed the blind man, was it Jesus' power? Or was it God the Father's power through the Holy Spirit? I don't know. But I know when he asks us to do what he has done, that he's asking us, inviting us to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not left alone. Paul goes on to say this. Well, no, I'll just give you the argument here. Uh, How are we to be humble, walk in humility, don't complain or argue, but shine bright? This is what he says in verses 14 and 15. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe. So I watched the State of the Union Address this week, and I was getting excited because I joked with somebody, I said, I finally feel like I have a president who's focused on the economy, because four years ago, I wanted a president who focused on the economy. Eight years ago, I wanted a president who focused on and So on and so forth. Why? Because I want my children to have some sort of financial stability in a a, a country that they can then go and take what God has given them and bless others with it. I remember when Ross Perot ran for president. I was this big. I go, I like this guy. Why? Because he's going to fix this problem. I don't want this country to go into trillions and trillions and trillions upon trillions of dollars in debt so that there's no future for my children and my children's children. The first president that I remember is Ronald Reagan. Uh, he was president when I was young. And I remember hearing about the great Republican values. And then I remember George Bush. And then I remember um, Bill Clinton. And then I remember George Bush. And then I remember Barack Obama. And all, these, all these things. And I think that as I look back, uh, even on, uh, during the State of the Union, I said, I wish that my president would walk in Humility. But then God said, you're asking something of a man that may not be where he's at. Okay. And then I was talking to another friend, and I said, did you watch the prayer breakfast? I go, I, I caught some of it. And did you hear what, what President Trump said when he was encouraged to, to love his enemies? He goes, that's hard. That's hard. He goes, I think God's working on his pride. Goes, we are supposed to pray for a president, Republican or Democrat. It doesn't matter. No matter what happens this year, we're supposed to pray for our president. Guys, if you turn on the news for five minutes or you hop on Facebook for five minutes, all you're going to see is the rhetoric and the hate. And I go, that's not what God has called us to. He's called us to be like him and to walk in humility. What does he say? Do everything without complaining or arguing. Well, I hate this or I hate that and I wish this and I wish... No, no so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. That's what we live in. What's our responsibility? In which you shine like stars in the universe. Don't complain. Shine bright. When the world is telling you to brag about your accomplishments, walk in humility when the world is telling you to defend your reputation, walk in humility. When you're tempted to respond to somebody's just horribly wrong argument because you're right, walk in humility. How are we to respond to the world around us? I love what Jesus said to His disciples, when they were questioned about taxes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's. These songs that we sang earlier, (laughs) man, where is my focus? Is it on the worldly things that I desire? Have I placed this flag in a higher place than I've placed God in my life? I've got to wrestle with that. I have loyalty to this flag, but I have, I should have a lot more loyalty, and I'm not going to say that flag, but to Jesus himself. Where does your loyalty lie? Is it with a party or, or is it with a person? I struggle with this, and I struggle having these conversations with my kids because, well, Dad, who are the good guys? And I go, I go, none of them are. What? Who are the good... None of them are. Who who fights for our values? Both of them do. How do we decide? As we need to be a people who serve the king. And I don't know how you Navigate through this. Guys, I'm 38. I'll be 39 next month. Some of you have lived through twice or three times as many presidents as I have. I look to you for wisdom. I do. But I want you to know that the world also looks to you for guidance and how you respond. Don't, please don't, put on the glasses and become one of them who goes, that's why they're wrong or That's why they're wrong. Ask God to help you take these things off. Go, Lord, how do I navigate this? How do I navigate this? I love preaching, but I hate preaching when I'm preaching to myself. Meaning, this is hitting me hard. This is hitting me hard. Because I know... I've done this wrong. I've done this poorly. And I can do better. I'm going to invite the worship team up um, just to close us in prayer. Or to close us in prayer.